God, thank you that you are unchanging, uh, that you are sovereign, that we can place our trust in you, even when times aren't aren't good, are painful, are tough. I pray that you would just speak that into our hearts this morning, God, that you would use Michael, use your word um, just to change us here today, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Brandon and Amy and Jacob. And, uh, and those three songs really very accurately portray uh, the message of, of 1 Peter 4, uh, 12 through 19 that we're looking at this morning. So if you would be turning there, we are nearing the end of our journey through 1 Peter, which means we're nearing the end of, of these. Now, you do remember why this is here, right? Why is this here? <laughs> Thank you. No. <laughs> it's nice of you. That's not why this is here. Why is this here? Yeah, it's uncomfortable. I don't... You know, at one point in time in my life, I wore these all the time and uh, don't much anymore. It, uh, it's uncomfortable. Um, and we live in a world that's uncomfortable. The, uh, the message of First Peter, which is uh, in your bulletin, and up on the screen as well, maybe. Did I put it on there, Phil, this week? Yeah. Oh, good. Uh, that's the message of, of First Peter, just a reminder. Everything boils down to something in one of those lines. Peter's writing to teach them based on what God has done, how to live where they don't belong when they are facing difficulties. And we all fit into that category. So this letter is as much written to us as it is to his readers back in the first century. Because all of us face difficulties. All of us at one time or other feel like we don't belong. Um, but God has done something wonderful uh, for us. And so uh, Peter can speak with authority and with experience of, you know what, in the midst of what you're facing, this really is the best way to live and so we come to the end of chapter 4 this morning, um, and beginning in verse 12, we read these words. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted... For the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will become of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved will become of the ungodly and the sinner. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word and the truth that is in it and the encouragement that we find there. I pray that You would open our ears to hear, our hearts and minds to understand, and that You would ultimately change our wills, that we might be Your children. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, this has been the most convicting passage that... Um, for me personally since we've been in First Peter. Um, I spent most of the week looking at verse 12 
actually, and chewing on it and thinking about it and arguing with God over it. Um, Do not be surprised, he says, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Why would Peter tell his readers not to be surprised at intense trials, at tests of faith? Why should they not be surprised at that? Yeah, very possibly, oh, I have the God of the universe on my side. What could possibly go wrong at this point in time, right? Yeah, I think that's a a very possible scenario. Why else might he have told them not to be surprised? Yeah, because guess what? It's going to happen. But often we get commands in Scripture to to counteract what our natural tendency is. And our natural tendency is to go, oh, I didn't expect that. Right? Our natural tendency, sorry, my natural tendency, but I think it's your natural tendency as well. Our culture's natural tendency is when things are really, really bad. And, and Peter's talking about things that are really, really bad. He's talking about fiery trials, not just, not just the ordinary, the car breaks down trial. Or there's not enough money at the end of the month trial. I'm not saying those are easy. I'm saying that's not what Peter's talking about. He's talking about persecution. He's talking about intense suffering. You shouldn't be surprised at those things. Those things are going to happen to believers. They're, in one sense, tests of faith. We're going to get into that more in a little bit farther down. But, and here's where, here's where I, I struggle. If we're not supposed to be surprised at fiery trials, if, if those shouldn't take us by surprise because we should expect them, right, then... Why are we surprised at the regular difficulties of life? Now, you may not say, well, I'm not surprised at the regular difficulties of life, but I think we are. We just don't call it surprise. Right? What is our reaction when things don't go the way we thought? What, is our, what are some reactions we get? Sometimes it is surprise. <gasps> I can't believe that happened. But there are other reactions that I think fit into that category. How else do we respond when things don't go our way? How do I fix it? And why do we why do we think that that needs to be fixed? Why is that the first thought that pops into our head? I've got to fix this. We think it shouldn't happen. We think it shouldn't happen. Right? We we there's something in us, right? And I think there's something in us that there's echoes of Eden that Things shouldn't break. <laughs> Things shouldn't go wrong. There's something deep inside us that says, this shouldn't be like this. This world shouldn't be like this. From the car breaking down to race riots in America. Something about that's just not right. How else do we respond besides wanting to fix it? Irritation. Why do we become irritated? 
We are entitled to be comfortable and happy all the time. We are. <coughs> I don't like that pain that I feel because my life should be pain-free. I don't want to worry about fill in the blank because well, my life should be comfortable. My life should be normal. And I've got this vision of, of the way that my kingdom is supposed to go and when it's out of sync, I get irritated or throw a pity party. <clears throat> or get angry. Because in a perfect world, that wouldn't have happened. So it's got to be your fault, Tim. I mean, it can't be mine. <laughs> right? It's got to be Todd's fault. It's got to be Michael's fault. It can't be, right? Someone, someone did this, right? Why should we not be surprised that difficulties happen? Why should that not surprise us? So an imperfect, why is it an imperfect world? That's exactly right. Why is it an imperfect world? Yeah, the fall. It affected not only all of humanity, but nature itself. It's corrupted. That means we can blame Adam And that part of him that is in you. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. Disease happens on a regular basis on this planet. Death happens on a regular basis on this planet. Things break on a regular basis on this planet. And yet we, yet we find ourselves when those things happen to us going, Oh no! Now, we have to be careful. Because it's true that we shouldn't sing songs to a troubled heart. That doesn't mean that those things aren't traumatic. That doesn't mean that those things don't cause us pain. We shouldn't be like uh, Hamlet's stepfather when he, was, when he was depressed over his own father's death going, Cheer up, bud. Everybody dies. <laughs> right? That's not what, what I'm saying. It's not what Peter is saying either. But sometimes we act like... <sighs> And we don't portray to the world that our confidence and our trust is in Almighty God, the creator and sustainer of the universe. We portray to the world that my kingdom is not going as planned and so I'm angry, irritated, or sad. And it's not a picture of, of who God is and what He has done for us. And there's a fine line between showing compassion to other people, which is necessary and right and good when they're facing difficulties, and reacting to those difficulties in our life in a, in a sinful, in a surprising manner.
We, just, we need to be realists as Christians. Life is difficult. Or as one songwriter says, life is not long, but it's hard. He says at the end of 12, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Um, first thing we've got to keep in mind, first point, uh, trials in life are not strange things. Don't treat them like that. Don't treat them like, I can't believe this is happening to me. You should believe it's going to happen to you. Things will break. You will become diseased. People die. People do dumb things. People will hurt you. They will say things that are unkind. They will persecute you because you claim the name of Christ. Don't be surprised. It's not strange. That's normal. People are sinful. You should have a very low view of humanity and a very high view of the grace of God. And that will help you navigate those waters of compassion and not being surprised when things happen. That will allow you to give grace to someone who hurts you, but also allow you to stand up by faith in that that's not the end of the world when they did hurt me. And then two, the second point from verse 12, a clear understanding of the fall should cause us to expect difficulties. Let's not fool ourselves and buy into the, the modern day notion that people are really are good deep down. They really aren't good deep down. He goes on in verse 13. The, the opposite or the, the counteracting command to don't be surprised, he says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. What's the basis of their suffering? Why does he tell them to rejoice in suffering? That seems backward. Why does he, what's the basis for them to be able to do that? Because Christ suffered. We follow one who set an example for us, not only in that that was necessary, but how he did that, right? And we're called to rejoice in our sufferings. It's interesting that he ties the present to the future, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings now, so that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. There's this, one of the reasons I read in Revelation, identification with Christ's sufferings now, today, and, and rejoicing in those is a, a confirmation of our great joy that we will experience in the resurrection. Paul talks about it in Romans 6. We, we have been, we identify with Christ in His death so that we will identify also with Him in His resurrection. This is both a comfort and a challenge to us. For those of us who can rejoice in difficulties and, and sufferings, it is a, a confirmation of our faith. I'm rejoicing now 
I'm not compromising, and so therefore I know, I'm confident of my rejoicing in the future. It's also a challenge to us. If we can't rejoice in this life, are we missing something? Are we His? It should be a a check to our spirit. Am I walking with Him if, if I'm not rejoicing in this life? Because I think what he's saying is that that my rejoicing now is a sign and a testimony not only to myself but to the world that one day there is something better. I can rejoice now because I am going to rejoice. I'm going to sit down and feast with Almighty God. And there's nothing that you can do or this world can throw at me that can take that away or that can change that. He goes on and fleshes that out in verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Why does Peter say that we're blessed if we're insulted for the name of Christ? Why is that a blessing? It's not nice. It hurts. Right? I, I, don't, know. If any, I don't know if any of you have ever been personally insulted for the name of Christ. I know in general Christians are insulted for the name of Christ in this country. More or less it happens here and there. Some of you may personally have been insulted for the name of Christ. But why is that a blessing? That seems, well, it's just, again, it's one of those things that's not right, it shouldn't happen, we, we say. But why is that why is that a blessing? Because it implies you identify with Christ. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. We, again, again, I think 14 fleshes out 13. It's a confirmation because the Spirit, he says, the Spirit of glory, the Spirit of God rests upon you. People aren't going to persecute you for being a Christian, usually, unless they're just mistaken about what that is, right? If you're not. It's a confirmation that God's Spirit, and ultimately that glory that we will experience is a part of your life. I'm, you mean it for evil, as we sing, but God means it for good. It's a confirmation of our faith. We, we can rejoice in that. We're blessed. We follow a long train of people from the fathers to the prophets to Jesus Himself to the apostles, and then throughout the ages to people who have been persecuted for the name of Christ, and they are indeed blessed. And as Peter talked about back in chapter 3, if we're willing to suffer for the name of Christ... Rather than compromise, it indicates that God's Spirit is working in us to sanctify us. Again, it's a testimony to ourselves. When we're willing to suffer, instead of compromise our faith, it's a testimony that God's Spirit is working in us to sanctify us. We're blessed. Again, as, as we say, we, thank you, O oh my Father, for giving us your Son. And then what's the... And then, 
Say that again? And then leaving out, leaving your spirit until your work on earth is done. It's not just that He's given us His Son. He's filled us with the Spirit to guide us and direct us. And that confirmation that Paul says in Romans 8 that we're His children to testify to us. We may not like it, but part of that comes through the idea of suffering. Verses 15 and 16. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. He begins, don't shame the name of Christ by suffering like a non-believer. Right, we, there are, and there always have been throughout history, penalties for things like murder and theft and doing wrong, a general term, and, and meddling in other people's affairs. Right? So don't suffer like that. Don't suffer like a non-believer would suffer. Don't bring shame upon God's name by suffering like that. But also, don't feel any shame when you do suffer for His name. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. There are two sides of that coin. Don't bring shame upon God's name, but also don't feel any shame if you're suffering as a believer. Nothing to be ashamed of. Right? Again, I'm in a long line of faithful, godly people who have suffered for the name of Christ. And I can stand proudly in that line, the head of which is our Savior, Jesus Christ. Instead, we glorify God. And we praise you that we get to be a part of what you are doing on this planet and through suffering, letting other people see what it means to walk with Christ. Through suffering, letting people see what, it, what true faith looks like. It's attractive. It has been throughout the centuries when people are willing to lay down whatever it is they're called to lay down for Christ. But also in that, in that section, we have to ask ourselves a question. Why am I suffering? Am I suffering because I deserve it? Because I'm a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler? <clears throat> Is my suffering from my own doing, my own stupidity, my own mistakes, my own sin? Or is my suffering because I'm being faithful to God? And again, there's this check that Peter, I think, inserts here for us to evaluate our lives. We need to evaluate our lives. Is my suffering due to my own sin because I'm walking faithfully with God? We have to ask ourselves that question. We might rephrase those, those two lines I said earlier. The only crime we should be guilty of is being a Christian. The only crime we should be guilty of is being a Christian. And faith is nothing to be ashamed of, even if society says that it is. And we live in a society that more and more is leaning that direction. That 
you believe this book to be true, if you believe there actually was someone who died and rose again, that there is this being that created everything, that's a, a foolish notion. Surely science has taught you enough by now to know that that can't be true, right? And the question is, do we, do we believe that? Even if society says you're foolish... Are we ashamed of our faith? Even if others are. 17 and 18. For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? If we're refined by fire as a test... You and I, believers, if we're refined by fire as a, a test in this life of our faith, what will be the result of those who don't pass that test? That's a, it should be a, a very sobering thought for us. That as I undergo suffering in this life, that is, as Paul says, a light and momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory. For some, that eternal weight of glory will be marvelous and wonderful and we will rejoice with exceeding great joy. For others, that eternal weight of glory is an everlasting punishment. It's not a light and momentary affliction. It's an eternal suffering and torment. And is that, does, that, does our suffering remind us, I think that's what Peter's getting at, that there are other people that don't know Christ in our midst and what are we doing about it? It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. God is interested in His people and He is going to refine them here and now, but one day there will be a, a final judgment. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Who have not believed in the death and resurrection of Christ? by fire is a positive thing for the church. It allows us to be confident and confirmed in our faith. It gives us opportunity to use our gifts as we comfort and have compassion for one another. It draws us closer together. Now, how many of you as, as a family ever went on one of those trips that was a disaster? Nobody? Everybody's vacation has always been perfect? You're kidding. No one's ever been on a camping trip where it rained the whole time? Good. Finally, honest people. Car broke down twice. Right? Don't those things build memories? Don't those things... I mean, at the time, it's like, we're never doing this again. Ten years later, we look back and we laugh, and, and those, are, those can be very bonding times, right? Difficulties in the church can, can be if we think about them correctly, bonding times. I can't believe nobody else in here has ever had bad vacations. Or you just don't want to raise your hand. Thank you. Honest, right there in the back. <laughs> and if we're uncomfortable with testing, if we don't like it, 
how ought we to behave towards non-believers? If we wish suffering didn't happen to us, should that not motivate us for our neighbors to love them and share Christ with them? Verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I don't like that. Suffering can be God's will. But those who suffer according to God's will, does that seem fair and right? Again, we go back to the cross. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that Word hung on a cross for your sake and my sake. Suffered according to the will of God. And would we dare think that somehow we're special enough to somehow get out of that? He wants to continue to make us look like His Son, and so He will put us in situations that are trying and demanding and challenging to allow us this wonderful idea of grace-filled practice. Life is like a long scrimmage. You can make mistakes, and it's okay because there'll always be another one tomorrow. It's, it's, right? The real season doesn't start until heaven. You realize that, right? Not that these practices aren't important because people are watching. Because it has an effect on other people and, and us as a body of Christ. But you do realize that every mistake you make, there's grace that allows you to get back up and get back in line and go again. You have a coach who's not going to cut you. But this isn't the NFL where you've got to get down to, what is it, 45 or 42, right? You're all welcome at the table. You're all welcome to get back out there and try again. There's grace for every opportunity, for every mistake, there is grace. For every time the trial comes our way and we fail because we pout or get angry, get irritated, or complain at God, where are you, why aren't you here? Which is a common refrain through the Psalms. It's a natural reaction and emotion. God, where are you in the midst of this pain and chaos? And sometimes He is silent. And yet those Psalms always end with, yet I will praise you. Because the people experienced grace. David experienced grace. The writers of the Psalms understood what it meant to fail miserably and have the hand of God come alongside them and say, I still love you. I still care for you. I still want to invite you to that great feast. I want to sit down and have a meal with you. And so because that's true, because God loves us enough to... to Inflict, afflict us with suffering, we can entrust ourselves to Him. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Notice He calls Him a faithful Creator. He goes back to the very beginning of the One who in wisdom made everything that we see. Set things up to be the way they were. And if the Creator is the one who is still in charge, 
the one who knows you intimately and deeply, the one who knows that this world is broken, the one who knows how to fix it through His Son. He's not asking us to entrust ourselves to the body of Christ, though in in some ways God calls us to do that. He's not asking us to entrust ourselves to a government, though God does want us to submit because He set those things up. Ultimately, He's asking us to entrust ourselves to Him because He's the only one that knows how it works, ultimately why it's broken, and how to fix it. Because as much as I want to fix it, right, Will? As much as I want to fix it, I'm ignorant of the deep, deep message behind why things happen the way they do. I don't see all of eternity. I can't figure out why these things are happening right now in this way at this time. I don't know that. I don't know what His purposes are. I can't see beyond right now. don't have a clue what He's doing what he's working out. But Peter says we can entrust ourselves to him because he's the creator and he's faithful, bringing up the long line of promises that God has made to his people where he kept those promises over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. You can trust him. He is faithful. He's the one one that knows what's best for us for all times. And so we shouldn't be surprised. Instead, we should rejoice in what God has called us to. We shouldn't find ourselves suffering because we've brought shame to His name, but we should glorify God when we suffer for His name. Our minds should always be on those around us because if if we suffer in this life, what's that going to look like for those who don't know Him in the next? Ultimately, do we entrust ourselves to Him? Or are we just hoping that maybe tomorrow this world is going to fix itself and those bad things will stop happening? And then I can start being surprised again when bad things happen. Peter says, no. We live in a broken world. Therefore, we need to entrust ourselves to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, your blessings for us. And that you've given us your Son and you've allowed us fellowship with you through your Spirit. Because your your Son hung on a cross for us. Our sins have been forgiven and washed away. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in your Son. God, I pray that you would implant that truth deep in our hearts. And if there are those sitting here this morning who who don't know that, who doubt that, God, I pray through your Spirit that you would move in their hearts, that you would reveal yourself to them in a new way this morning. God, I pray that you would change us, that you would allow us to trust you. Because I know, folks in this room, there are difficult things that are going on. Unfair things, unjust things, hard things that have been challenging them for years. God, I pray that they would know your compassion and your grace and your mercy. 
And I pray that they would know the, the strength of this church body. Help us to be compassionate and kind and loving toward another. Forbearing and forgiving. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the gift of your son and your spirit. May you be glorified in all that we do this week. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.